if we can't care for our emotions, our hearts, our minds, our bodies, what hope do we have for 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 caring for planetary natural systems? Or thinking from an eco-feminist perspective, we can't build um, relational equity and care um, across all genders in a household or in a workplace or in a community. Where's our hope, right, for crossing the species boundary, right, or or, or to care for the moon, right? And so I think I think it actually has to start with the daily. Welcome to the Our Nature podcast with me, Alyssa Benjamin. Our Nature explores the methods, systems, and practices that bring us into greater alignment with the natural world. The opportunity to live a more joyful and harmonious existence is available to each of us right in this very moment. So join me and let's rediscover what comes naturally. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Our Nature. This episode is truly one of my favorites. But before I introduce today's guest, I wanted to share some news about a new offering that I released last week. If you're subscribed to my email list, you were the first to receive a free mini course that I created called Build Your Magnetic Nature Altar. I created this course because I was noticing that mornings for me were feeling really crunched for time. And yet I was looking for a ritual that would ground me in the present moment connect me to the natural world, and help me return home to myself. In this course, I teach you how to build your magnetic nature altar over the span of five days. Each day, you'll awaken one of your senses with a practice and then use that practice as inspiration to then gather an item for your altar. The practice and the gathering of your item should take less than 10 minutes, so it's designed for people who have a lot going on, as I know we all do. And the course is also self-paced, so don't worry if you need to do it over the span of a week or even two. Once you've gathered everything and built your altar, I'll then show you how to practice the morning ritual that I do to supercharge my magnetism for the day. I love this course so much. It's fun, it's meaningful, it's powerful, and best of all, it's free. So if you're interested in joining so many of us all over the world who are already creating our magnetic nature altars, I've included a link in the show notes, and I'll be sharing my magnetic nature altar, a photo of what mine looks like soon on Instagram, and I really can't wait to see yours. I'll also be announcing this month's Our Nature Hikes location in Thursday's newsletter, so this week, tomorrow. So if you're in LA, get on the list so that you can join us. For those of you who don't know what Our Nature Hikes is, it is my monthly hiking club where we gather in community and go outside so we can grow inside. On each hike, I'll lead a mindful or creative practice that will nourish and support our spirits. And finally, I wanted to share that I am currently getting my forest therapy certification. 
I'll become a forest therapist by the end of the summer, which means that I'll be certified to lead forest therapy walks for individuals and groups. Forest therapy is derived from the Japanese practice of Shinrin-yoku, also known as forest bathing. And it's about spending time in nature in a way that brings deeper intimacy with natural places. Some of the health benefits of forest bathing are boosted immune function, improved cardiovascular and respiratory health, attention restoration, and a reduction in stress and depression. But in all of this, Forest therapy is really about restoring your relationship to place. And I've already led many therapeutic experiences in nature, but I'm super excited to deepen my practice and expand my toolbox. So more to come on this as I learn along the way. Okay, that's all the news I have for you this week. I just want to say that it's been such a joy to connect with so many of you over the past month on Instagram or at the hiking club, in person, and via email. I'm always so happy when a listener reaches out, so please don't be shy about connecting with me. It's truly one of my favorite things. Okay, this week I had the honor of speaking with Dr. John Hausdorfer. Dr. Hausdorfer is an environmental philosopher, author, teacher, and dean of the Clark School of Environment and Sustainability at Western Colorado University. He has written and co-edited titles such as Caitlin's Lament, Wildness, What Kind of Ancestor Do You Want to Be? And most recently, he was the co-editor of Kinship, Belonging in a World of Relations a five-volume series that was published by the Center for Humans and Nature. Kinship explores our deep interconnections with the living world. And along with his two co-editors, Gavin Van Horn and my personal hero, Robin Wallkimmerer, the series contains essays, interviews, poetry, and stories of solidarity about how we can deepen our care and respect for the plants, animals, rivers, mountains, and others who live with us in this tangle of relations. In this conversation, we discuss the importance of language when it comes to understanding our connection to the earth, what John's shift was like from an academic relationship to the wild to one that's rooted in personal practice, why disconnection in all its forms creates a spiritual danger, how we can begin to shift from an extractive perspective to one that's mutualistic, and what it means to, quote, go kinning. This conversation was one of my favorite to date. It was such a joy, and again, I'll say an honor to chat with Dr. Hausdorfer, and I can't wait for you to hear and learn from him. Lastly, I'm going to be doing a special giveaway of the Kinship series, the five volumes with the Center for Humans and Nature on Instagram. So head to at our nature always on Instagram so you can get all the details of that and hopefully win a set of these wonderful, wonderful books. That's all for me. Welcome to my conversation with the wise and heart-centered Dr. John Hausdorfer.
Hello, John. Welcome to the Our Nature podcast. I am super honored to be speaking with you. I'm super honored and I'm very excited to be speaking with you on this Monday morning. Yeah, the honor's mine. Wonderful to meet you. Wonderful to meet you. I always like to start every episode of my podcast by taking a little trip back in time. And I find that when we are young, we have not been conditioned out of our instinctive, intuitive ways of being and ways of expressing ourselves. And so the first question I like to ask all of my guests is, what was your relationship like to nature as a child? Well, I've I've been living in the central Colorado Rockies for 30 years now. Um, I moved here uh, when I was about 18. And when I was a kid, I grew up in New Jersey. During a time in the late 70s through the early 90s, during which, you know, there was a lot of development. So farms were being turned into developments, um, forests were being turned into mini malls, you know, and so I saw a lot of loss um, in that sense. You know, I grew up, you know, playing in these little bits of forest between cornfields and, and, and um, playing in the ocean. I do remember, however... When I was a young teen, it was the summer that uh, a lot of the hospitals ran out of landfill space. And so there were some, some hospital dumping in the ocean. So I can actually remember surfing and seeing a syringe float by, you know, things like that. Um, so, you know, I think for me, my formative experiences were more just trying to find places of play uh, within, in the neighborhood. And then a really formative experience was I had an uncle who... Uh, had a place in Quebec, an A-frame in, in Quebec, north of Montreal, which felt like the middle of nowhere to, you know, a kid who grew up 30 minutes from New York City. And uh, it was just incredible to have that level of, um, that lack of, that level of uh, lack of development in my youth. And that really formed me. Fell in love with mountains in the Laurentian Mountains of Quebec. And then is that it's is that where you first started skiing and experiencing you know nature through winter, winter yeah. sports and absolutely that's that's when I wanted to do a deeper dive into wildness you know and um, spaces where you know humans were more like visitors uh, at the time I hadn't understood well enough um, complicated ways in which how settler colonial cultures think about wilderness can erase indigenous history and ownership of land. Uh, and um, as a kid of, of white privilege, I was just fascinated with spaces where that seemed like homes to more than humans, to animals, uh, to habitat. And I loved that feeling of confusion. Where do I fit here? And that feeling of humility that just came from, even at a young age, feeling like the world was bigger than me. You know, And I found that in the forests of Quebec, uh, around my uncle's place. But I did, I was able to find that in, you know, developed and developing uh, New York City, tri-state, New Jersey, you know, and, and I had to get better and better at finding that feeling of wildness, that feeling of humility in New Jersey, that sense that there are, this earth is not just here for me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I moved west at 18, looking for an even greater sense of that. Um, Yeah, I love that you mentioned finding it in New Jersey and finding it in a built human environment because 
something that I talk a lot about on the podcast, and I speak a lot to people who live in cities and in urban places. And mostly they're the ones that are feeling really disconnected from the natural world and really craving more natural spaces. And we talk a lot about how you can, it's obviously harder in an urban environment, but you can connect with nature wherever you are. And it can be as simple as looking up at the sky um, or looking at a tree and watching the breeze rustle the leaves. So I think it can be harder to find, but it's available no matter well, where you even, are. Even within, you know, the Center for Humans yeah. and Nature out of Chicago, we did a book called Wildness in 2017. And we even shifted away from the word nature, which can suggest a separation from humans right off the bat, right? And in looking at wildness, we're looking at any sort of self-organizing being or community or system having its own wildness and um, outside of human influence. But Gary Snyder, the great beat poet, um, environmental poet, Gary Snyder, says that um, we find wildness within ourselves just from mm -hmm. how we breathe, just from the fact that we often breathe without even thinking about it. So our bodies are self-organizing beings, you know. Uh, all the way out to, you know, the expansion and contraction of the universe itself from the Big Bang far into the future. Um, you know, there there is wildness accessible everywhere in the sense of we are surrounded by living, thriving, self-organizing beings. And so a lot of it's less about finding the right place. So, for example, um, you know, me sort of running to Colorado to find a deeper sense of humility that I found in Quebec, um, I sometimes question that move. You know, I actually think I was learning a richer relationship with self-organizing self wild beings and systems in New Jersey than I found here in Colorado because I had to almost develop more of a practice of finding it and focusing on it and thriving in what was hard to find in New Jersey. Um, and so... You know, for me, um, I really like Gary Snyder's book, The Practice of the Wild. So it's less about which spaces are more wild and more about like our state of mind or way of being. Um, you know, how are we connecting with uh, the microbes within us? The, you know, the, what is it? Three kilometers of fungi you could stretch out from one spoon <laughs> of, so of topsoil. Um, there's just so much rich life and wildness organizing itself to humble us um, mm -hmm. as humans once we develop the practice. So places started to matter less and less to me. Yeah, that's really powerful. I study Ayurveda and the, one of the principles of Ayurveda is that the elements around us are within us. I mean, that's how the system is organized. Um, you have the three, well, you have multiple, you have five elements in Ayurveda. But it's, again, a very, it, the whole, you know, life science is based on that concept. And therefore, optimum health is achieved by optimum balance. And it's always dynamic because the environment outside of us is always changing. And so, therefore, we are always changing and rebalancing in relation to it. So, um, it's a very similar type of belief. Um, and, yeah, I, I just... I really like the way that you spoke about that. 
Well, you know, my my colleague Gavin Van Horn, who uh, led the charge on the uh, on the kinship series um, with myself and Robin Wall Kimmer, Gavin has a couple of really interesting views along those lines. One is he'll often hike barefoot. He thinks the skin sort of like a, a, a drum, you know, between the inner and outer world, like a membrane that vibrates, that vibrates um, the energy between the outer and inner world to remind us that we are part of um, the greater than human world, not separate from. And secondly, he has a really interesting practice before he writes each time. He does a brief um, five senses meditation mm. so that A, his writing is a little more place-based and present, but also, you know, B, that he's able to not be writing from just inside his head. And so I've actually adopted that from him, that I like the way you put that. You're, how did you say it? Our inner is our outer or the... Yeah, the elements around us are also within us. Yeah, no, I, I quite like that. And so I've started to learn, you know, I, I came at this first as an environmental historian uh, and philosopher. And so it was very heady for me, you know, mm -hmm. uh, looking at the history of ideas in the West on nature, critiquing the extent to which um, Western settler colonial cultures um, justified domination of uh, basically the homelands of indigenous peoples, um, including through viewing them as wilderness, because once a settler colonial culture can call someone's homeland wilderness, it's not theft to steal it because it's not, mm. viewed as owned, not right it's not viewed as owned anymore but i come at it from a very, very heady space of academic critique and it's only been in the last really half decade since the wildness book the what kind of ancestors do you want to be book and now the kinship series that um i've started to develop my own sort of practice of the wild if you will um yeah you know, and that's kind of brought me back to my new jersey roots of like working hard to find it versus just like I'm sitting at a place where there's nine wilderness areas within 30 miles of me right now, but that hasn't necessarily strengthened my ability to connect um, with the power of wildness. It's, I wanted to ask you about that because I found that in mainstream Western consciousness, talking about spirituality or God, however anyone conceives of it in the context of the natural world is actually quite rare. And for me, the path to the divine, I believe, can be found by connecting with nature. And that is the anchor of my entire podcast. And at this point in my life, I would say my life's work at this moment. And when I read your work, it seems like you are coming from a similar perspective. But what you just mentioned was for some time, it was very academically leaning and academically informed. Um, but I'd love to hear now, as you mentioned in the last few years, as you've been writing these books and as you've been connecting more from like a felt sense, um, do you personally experience your relationship to nature as a spiritual one? And if so, how has that unfolded for you? I like that phrase, felt sense. Um, I was saying to a very good friend the other day, um, you know, that, um, you know, she and I, different parts of our lives have struggled with depression, you know, and, and one of the things that I've found really helpful has been to trust the body, 
you know, live, living in the body gets you out of the rumination in your head. And at least for me and, and living in the body immediately, um, immerses me in the connectivity between self and world mind and body body and nature human and more than human right um and so you know for me spirituality i, I just see connectivity as a synonym for spirituality you know and there's a deep connectivity ecologically obviously um in in connecting with the world that sustains us um, although leopold said there was a spiritual danger in not knowing where your food and heat came from uh you know and and he was well aware of the material dangers he had lived through the dust bowl he'd seen deforestation he's seen species extinction um but he said spiritual danger and i and i and i think about spiritual danger i think it's about the loss of that connectivity with the source of our livelihood and the reason for me that's a spiritual danger is that what we're losing connection with is not just um, the more than human world that sustains us. Not only is that spiritual connection being severed, but also we're losing that connection with the part of ourselves that cares, right? In a, in a, in a global economy um, where with one click I can move, right? A whole planet of resources to my doorstep. I, I'm not even in a position to pose the question to myself, do I agree with the labor practices leading to this? Do I um, understand the impact on the land? Um, my main options seem to be like boycott or participate because it's very it's very difficult to truly understand the consequences of our comforts. And so for me, right, a, a spiritual journey would be reconnection with myself as a moral agent, as one who can perceive and care for the complexity of the world that sustains me, and then understand, right, the implications of each of my choices for that world. And that to me is spiritual. That to me is a spiritual journey of reawakening my capacity to care for the complexity that feeds me. And to have that severed doesn't just threaten the planet through overconsumption without consciousness, right? To have that severed threatens the human capacity to care. And that's a spiritual danger for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I always say like my podcast is not basically something that I have thought about a lot is what is the path towards true like climate action, true activism, true um, and lasting change, true. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what, what your thoughts about this, but I do believe we are uh, extinction of our species is probably inevitable, but it's like how and when. Um, at this point, I don't know, maybe that's a pessimistic view, but um I often think about like what that path will look like and how we can go down it with more grace. And one of the things that I've thought about a lot is that the way that we can truly change our behavior and the way that we can truly become activists starts, it's an inside job. It's like an inner experience. It starts on the inside. And so, so much of 
the work that I do, it may not look directly like activism, but to me, it's the pathway in, at least it's been my journey, where when you develop a deep connection to your wildness, as you call it, we don't need to say nature, we can say your wildness, then that becomes the catalyst for making choices that are regenerative versus destructive. And I don't believe you can uh, want to safeguard anything that you don't have a deep connection to. And so it just resonates with me what you said. It is a spiritual journey to begin to develop that relationship. And then it's, it's kind of the basis for kinship. It's like we protect who we love. We, you know, we want those who we are in relation with to flourish alongside ourselves. Um, that becomes where we start to be selfless rather than selfish. And I think that's really the pathway in that I've found for, at least on my own journey, um, for, you know, climate action, for activism, for making choices that are supportive rather than destructive. Oh, that's, that's really well put. And, and, and I think the inner work, you know, that you're talking about is, is vital. Um, and you're right. Kinship is the, the, the path that we're trying to learn from. And uh, that alternative to severing the connection with the world that sustains us, the social, ecological, land, labor, nature, culture, forces in a global capitalist economy um, that, uh, depending on one's social position, um, allow for a certain standard of living, um, that disconnection um, is an ethical crisis. It's a planetary crisis. It's a species extinction crisis. It's um, but I think the alternative is kinship, like you said. And, and I like the way you put this, that, you know, we're not going to fight for a place we don't love and we're not going to break down the division between selflessness and selfishness unless we see the self as larger. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, we have Richard Powers contributing to this collection, you know, his, his great book, The Overstory, uh, his beautiful novel, The Overstory. In it, he talks about Douglas fir trees, you know, and how we share 25% of genetics with Douglas fir trees. And so there's automatically a kind of genetic kinship there with a tree. But then the larger question becomes, in what way um, can can we learn from the more than human world? And, you know, what do Douglas fir trees have to teach us as relatives in the way that an elder in your family would have something to teach you. And I think when you come to, when one comes to understand how Doug fir trees uh, function in their environment, we start to see these mycelial my, networks underneath the soil, right? Where there's like a mother, uh, Doug fir tree feeding all the other Doug fir trees, but also the health of the soil throughout the entire forest, right? That sustains the flora and fauna of the forest. And when it dies, that central tree sends out all of its nutrients and energy into the system in that moment. And so it's like, I feel like, you know, I'm pushing 50 here. Um, my kid's about to be in high school. I'm starting to think of myself more and more as an elder. And that that's quite a lesson from a Doug fir tree. What does it mean to, you know, close your life with 
the greatest act of generosity you have, you know, and, and to feel the system around you as a part of the self, as an expression of the self. And the fact that we can learn that from a Doug fir tree is an act of kinship that Robin Kimmer uses it as a verb. She calls it kinning. So we go kinning when we learn uh, new scientific information, but then translate that into new ethics. We go kinning when we um, come to understand a new relationship with another species. We go kinning when we come to see that species as an elder. We go kinning when we then, through viewing that species as an elder, view it as part of our kin. And in that moment, right, um, selflessness becomes selfishness. Selfishness becomes selflessness because it's all one giant self. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's, to me, the ultimate goal of kinship, that there's nothing outside the self. And at that point, we're not just fighting for family. Right. Uh, global ecological re- regenerative practice and social justice is, is simply sustaining the most complex, beautiful self we've ever the only one we've ever had we just forgot about it friend of mine who's in this space with me who we talk about that very thing often and she wrote this beautiful piece um I think it was for well and good um but anyway she called it environmentalism her name is Alexa Gantus and she called it environmentalism as self-love and she talks about this very thing of like it's self-care it's self-love to care for the earth because we are of it so when we care for it, we care for ourselves. It's not different or separate. Um, I want to, there are so many things I want to get into about kinship. You've offer, you've authored many books. I wish we could talk about each one. Maybe I'll have to have you back and talk about wildness, relations of people in place. What kind of ancestor do you want to be? Which I find very, I would love to talk about that because this I've been speaking a lot with different guests on my podcast about ancestry and how to connect with your ancestors, like direct ancestors, but also maybe this larger concept of ancestry. And anyways, but that's a, that's a whole other podcast episode. But today we're talking about kinship, which is a five-volume set exploring, as Gavin Van Horn, your co-editor, described it, the stories of how to listen to voices other than our own. Which I thought was really beautifully said. I'm curious to hear how did the concept of kinship come to be and when did you get involved in the project? Yeah, well, you know, Gavin and I co-edited Wildness together and kinship evolves out of the Wildness Project. One of the things we learned from the Wildness Project was Enrique Salomon, who's a uh, uh, brilliant author and thinker, um, actually Tarhumar and Robert Murray, indigenous originally from Mexico is now at Cal State East Bay. He, his essay in wildness opened with, there's no word for wild in my language. That's a, you know, colonial concept that settler colonial cultures imposed upon my homeland in order to see it as not owned, right? Once you call it wild. 
it's a, it's a tool of colonialism. And, and, and it was great to have that essay in a book called Wildness. Yeah. And, and Gavin and I really got to thinking like, well, what's really at the core of wildness? You know, what, what, what's at the core of what we're trying to do in that book? And it really is about kinship. It really is about finding the depth of what our, our minds and hearts and bodies have in common with the social ecological systems with which we evolved. Um, you know, and, um, and so that, that's where that came from. We, we also um, really started to see a, a beautiful intersection between sort of Western ecological science and, and indigenous views of uh, relationality, um, all of our relations with the more than human world. And so we brought Robin Wall Kimmer into the project. Her book, Breeding Sweetgrass, beautifully talks about that braiding of her own sort of subjective experience of the more than human world, her own scientific understanding as a botanist and her own Potawatomi indigenous understanding, those three strands that she's braiding. And so we, we wanted to bring those strands together in the kinship collection and bring together uh, indigenous voices from around the world, um, scientific voices, and multicultural American voices on what does a new kinship look like? You know, the Douglas Fir story I was just telling, right? I called that kinning. Uh, it also, by the way, speaks of the Douglas Fir as an ancestor we can learn from. So these, these this, what kind of ancestor do you want to be? What is kinship? These things really intersect. Um, and so, yeah, and so the five volumes of kinship, we really wanted to get at that, that we wanted to break down that barrier uh, between self and world that sustains self, what you were calling inner and outer, and just render it absurd to crack <laughs> open a uh, new kind of caring. Uh, that this self-love that your friend and your colleague speaks of, the love of the larger self um, through kinship. And so, so we looked at different scales. Volume one looks at a planetary scale, including uh, viewing the moon as kin. Um, it's an incredible essay from um, Kerdwin Dovi, our sister satellite, speaks of the moon as kin and talks about how we're starting to see um, Multinational corporations start and nation states starting to view the moon as an eighth continent in terms of resource exploitation. And Dovey's argument is that if we can come to see the moon as kin rather than another continent of resources, if we can come see the moon as kin, what's going to stop us from seeing every inch of Earth as kin? Right? There's a revolution for our earthly relationships to see the moon as kin. And uh, he thinks. The, the moon is this great um, moral challenge um, to awaken our, our perception and caring, you know, about, about our family, our cosmic family, you know, all the way down to the earth scale. And then, and then we scale down to place, you know, your bioregion, you know, then we scale down um, to partners and looking at those relationships between human and more than human world in a place and then we look at persons and this revolution in personhood is really we think the ethical implications of the kinship book to as robin wall kimmer talks about you know uh, for her there are and in the potawatomi tradition there are maple persons and there are deer persons and there are right um engelman spruce persons and there are human persons and for me as a as a western trained philosopher person is just a being that pursues its own good in its own way. You know, we make that the criteria rather than this like 
dominant rationality that has long defined a kind of patriarchal culture. Then we open up, um, who do we share moral obligation with? What species, what beings? And then that gets challenged uh, when you even look at the moonest kin, right? Or when you look at a mountainous kin, like I do in my essay. Um, once you're cracking open that door to go even beyond living beings, let alone just humans, let alone just animals, uh, but then to then see how might rocks be kin, um, then you're opening up this, this ethical revolution of demanding personhood. I mean, you think about um, to the city of Toledo had declared the personhood of Lake Erie, and that allows Lake Erie to sue uh, agribusiness for its runoff. You know, in, in New Zealand, there's a partnership between the government and tribal communities to name a river, to give it personhood. And so we're, we're seeing through this um, embrace of kinship, not just a kind of philosophical, um, ethical revolution of self-love being love for everything as the self, we're also starting to see the potential for a kind of legal revolution um, of personhood. That's really exciting. I wanted to go back to, you mentioned Enrique Salman, and he talks about this term, or I guess phrase, or called concentric ecology. Mm-hmm. And it asserts that life in any environment is viable only when humans view their surroundings as kin, that their mutual roles are essential for their survival. And I would love to hear how can those of us who have brought been brought up, and you touched on this a bit, but we've been brought up in a culture that suggests otherwise. So how can those of us who have been brought up this way begin to shift our experience of ourselves and how we relate to the more than human world from one that is separate, that is, I mean, you alluded to this, like we're trying to do this with the moon, <laughs> um, to one that is mutualistic. Where? How do we begin that shift? This is such an important question, you know, and I, I think, I think the way we begin it is not just from the self out to the world and, and to, to apply um, ecological understanding, uh, a humble relationship with indigenous understanding to see how everything's part of the self. But I also think that it's easy to go in reverse to where our, our bioregion, for example, the keystone species of our bioregion become the keystones to, to our personal identities. So, for example, um, in, in one of the essays by um, Kailena Bray in, um, sorry, the, what kind of ancestor do you want to be book? Uh, Bray talks about um, how um, in, in Northeastern tribal communities, corn is so incredibly sacred that not knowing who you are without corn, you know, is a whole nother level versus the sort of Western conservationists, let's make sure we don't run out of corn. <laughs> right? Uh, let's make sure we restore the soil so we can continue to have a crop. You know, for Bray, it's, it's, I am not who I am without it. There's another um, person I interviewed uh, in the wildness book, uh, Michael Dahl, who talks about his Anishinaabe from White Earth Reservation in Minnesota. He talks about wild rice as, you know, he says he's not Anishinaabe without wild rice in his stomach during the wild ricing moon in September. 
wild, the discovery of wild rice is tied to their creation story, finding it growing on the lakes. Um, the, uh, it's, it's essential to their diet, central to cosmology, central to economy, central to ecological relationships. Um, and I, so I think for each of each person to sort of begin to think through what ecological and cultural factors of a place makes them who they are. And, you know, it's, there's an open question in terms of how to do that without co-opting, you know, where suddenly I moved from New Jersey 30 years ago and I'm in a problematic way playing Indian, trying to find my rice in Colorado when I have no indigenous connection and, and, and Michael's story with rice comes out of struggle. Right. And, and from the beginning of time connection to a place still, I think we can ask the questions. Um, what are the cultural keystones of where we live? How are they tied to ecological health? How do they fuel who we are and how are we desperate to be who we are without them? You know, and so for me, um, in my kinship essay, I'm up in the mountains on solstice Eve, trying to find a place to spread my brother-in-law's ashes, trying to understand this mountain I'm on. Why is it called terrible mountain? Like what an imperialistic name. And, and I end up interviewing a Ute mountain Ute leader who starts to kind of challenge my understanding of whether or not a mountain's even nameable. And I'm thinking about the Douglas fir trees on that property. I'm thinking about the indigenous history in that property. I'm thinking about the colonial exploitation that occurred on that property. I'm thinking about why am I there? What is my place there? You know, and through that, I start to figure out that, um, you know, it's that snowpack of that place that enlivens the ecosystems, but it's also necessary for, you know, cultures, ecosystems, economies from the Rockies to the Pacific Ocean to thrive. Without that snowpack, everything suffers. And so, you know, not only because I have a multi-generational love of skiing, but because I'm learning culturally and ecologically and economically why that snow is so vital to who we are in the West and who I and why my the health of my place is connected to the health of everywhere. Um, I start to narrow down a more abstract ethical mission around greenhouse gases globally down to will my grandkids ski on the solstice around my junk built cabin where I'm skiing in that moment. And it gives me this like very personalized ethical barometer tied to where and who I am. And I think that's the beginning, you know, is for each person to, um, sort of kill the abstractions of climate activism and make it about, um, how are you not who you are on the other side of this? And then how do you, through humility, build solidarity with an infinite diversity of ways in which other humans are not who they are in their places in the face of climate change? So, like, what is your rice? What is your snowpack? Yeah. Right? Um, and how to ask that in a way that's... Um, culturally inclusive solidarity driven rather than another example of well off a well-off white person taking just the part from indigenous struggle that they like mm -hmm. and then we, and then not not sharing in the, the struggle i think this if i'm understanding you correctly i think this speaks to 
another aspect of concentric ecology, which is that humans can play a keystone role in our landscapes. I'd love for you to share more about that, but but for those, I, I think there are probably many listeners um, who are tuning in right now who don't know what a keystone species is. So could you share first what yeah. a keystone species is and then share what this this view is around humans? You bet. And I, again, want to give Enrique Salmon credit for thinking about humans as historically having been keystone species. But, you know, folks can think about a beaver through making a dam. A beaver creates all of this habitat for other species. Right. So you remove the beaver, you remove the, the biodiversity around the beaver because the keystone species is gone or the buffalo on the American plains, um, you know, through 30 million buffalo moving and stirring up the soil and pooping everywhere and fertilizing that soil. The whole the biodiversity of the prairie ecosystem is possible. But as uh, Winona LaDuke, the Anishinaabe activist and author, Winona LaDuke once pointed out to me, um, but you don't get the buffalo um, in the face of colonialism without a people who sing to the buffalo who are not who they are without the buffalo. And so the ecological view of the keystone species is, yes, to have 250 plant species per acre on the prairie, the buffalo is required. So ecologically, it's a keystone species. But in the face of all these, like, violent um, threats from uh, westward expansion, you also need a people who view the buffalo as central to who they are for there to be that ecological keystone. So a people can become a keystone species in that sense, but also even prior to colonialism, even prior to uh, the invasion of Turtle Island in 1492, um, you had examples of um, uh, New England tribes the, through the use of fire, opening up the forest, enhancing the grasslands, increasing the biodiversity, the population and health of deer, bear, elk, and other species. Um, Enrique Salmon, you know, in talking about um, the plant species of his region and, and viewing those as edible, right, encouraged a relationship with the flora and fauna and soil health necessary to that place. So by the very presence of a healthy indigenous community, um, biodiversity can thrive. A really modern example or a more modern example would be Devon Pena, who ha also has an essay in the Kinship Collection in Southern Colorado. He's part of a, a Sakia community, uh, which is a ditch-based network taking snow melt, democratically distributing the water uh, to different different people's farms. And um, through that, that distribution of water and that ditch network they've created has expanded the riparian ecosystem necessary for bird migrations. Mm -hmm. And so the, the social justice movement of Hispanos farmers in Colorado fighting to protect the snowpack on their mountain in the face of climate change, which is really about protecting the water they need for their farms, is not just protecting their food systems, their particular strain of corn, their particular way of life, their water democracy, it's also protecting that expansion of the riparian ecosystem, making them a keystone species through just fighting for who they are. 
right? Without that struggle to continue to have their kids eat that corn, that expanded riparian ecosystem collapses. Mm-hmm. So, so that's what it needs yeah. to be a cultural keystone. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, so it sounds like a, a, a key aspect of being a keystone species is kinship, is that relationship. You can't, like, I. it sounds like we can't, as humans, be a keystone species for our environments unless we have that connection to it and That's that relationship. Right. Well said. And, and in seeing that's where you get uh, you develop a practice of the larger self-love we were talking about earlier to to see um the corn in your stomach in southern colorado's part of the self and therefore the healthier relationship with other farmers in your water democracy as part of the self necessary for that corn and therefore the riparian ecosystem that expands through those ditches and therefore the bird species that need it as part of the self and therefore the snowpack stability on the mountain necessary for it all as part of the self and therefore the atmosphere itself in the Anthropocene as part of the self. And it, 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 it comes down though to not just an intellectual awareness, but a daily practice of livelihood that not only builds up our kinship awareness and practice, but that offers humans the potential to be a keystone species. And this to me, is incredibly important to the sort of dominant environmental narrative. It's it's not a very inspiring narrative to continue to ask um, people to reduce, um, shrink their carbon footprint. These are all important tactics to reduce, reuse, recycle, leave no trace, shrink your carbon footprint. These are great tactics, but as a narrative, incredibly uninspiring, exhausting, driven by guilt, Guilt is the most unsustainable fuel for social change. And so what's the alternative to that guilt-driven change? It's something inspiring, something big, a story around rediscovering um, your larger self, rediscovering the human story as a keystone species, uh, reawakening the wildness of choices that come from creativity to build up. Take, for example, um, Wes Jackson, who's in the Ancestor book, in Kansas, he's seeking to restore the prairie. But he said, look, it's never going to look exactly like the prairie again, but we can restore the function of the prairie. So he's developed um, a perennial polycultural system where, you know, because it's perennial, um, different crops grow back without tilling the soil, without as much energy use, without as much soil erosion. And if you can develop the polycultural system, then they won't need the chemicals. And not only... Um, is that restoring the function of the prairie because it's stabilizing soil and um, reducing energy and recreating habitat, but it's also edible and provides biofuel. And so suddenly you have this like within the 21st century food economy, this restoration of place that also restores human creativity and wild ideas as the keystone species of that place regaining its biodiversity. So it's no longer about environmentalism as doing less bad. It becomes environmentalism as the greatest, most joyful act of human imagination and creativity to um, rediscover that keystone role. Which takes a, a lot of humility because 
you know, folks like Enrique and Devon are, are, are talking and sharing about cultures and Winona are talking and sharing about cultures that have done it from the beginning of time. Um, so there's a lot of co-learning that has to happen across cultures. Yeah, I think there's a stat that indigenous cultures uh, safeguard and steward like 80% of the biodiversity of the earth today. And yet I think they, you know, from geographically, like they make up such a small percentage of the earth. Right. Um, I, I don't know the exact uh, percentage, but something that, I mean, that sounds a lot more inspiring, uh, that framework and and something that Robin Walkimer talks a lot about is language and how yeah. an ethical revolution must depend on a language revolution. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you, you touched on that briefly with saying, you know, it, it is about the language we use when we talk about environmentalism or climate change. Can you share more about the importance of language and its power to shift our perspectives? Yeah. And I'm just, like you learning from people like Robin on this, um, a, a couple of things regarding language. One is that I think we're learning quickly that with the loss of cultural diversity, uh, we face the loss of ecological diversity because the more kin-centric models of being in a place that Enrique talks about that are lost through a colonial displacement, the more we lose the diversity of examples of humans having been keystone species. But then with language, language is the, the window into um, those cultural and therefore ecological practices. One word that stands out is a Nishinaabe word, manu minike, which means I'm going ricing. But when you ask someone to define that for you, it's just like long description, complete with like the sound of, of the pole on the canoe while you're going out into the rice, um, the smell of it parching, um, you know, it's just such a complete concept that brings together ecology, culture, all the senses. And, you know, you lose one word like that, let alone one dialect, let alone one language, let alone hundreds of languages. And you've lost your window into all those cultural practices. Secondly, and Robin's point is, what are you replacing that with? And um, for her, you're replacing that with um, a kind of endorsement of domination. So Robin will say, you know, don't call the moon it, right? Call it key. K-I is this word she has for like a, a living relational being. Um, you know, but once you reduce it to it, you're opening up just sort of allowing exploitation. Because if it's just an object, if it's not a person, if it's a thing, which it is referring to, you're, you're linguistically sanctioning yourself and accepting the, the, the exploitation of, of beings. And, and so the other thing 
that Robin teaches us is, and I mentioned this earlier, but I think it's worth thinking about again, is thinking of kin as a verb, mm-hmm. right? And, and that, and, and really, she she talks about that with a lot of a lot of words, a lot of nouns, is to think of them as verbs. You know that that um, it brings places to life, but what it means to kin to go kinning. You and I are kinning right now in that formerly strangers, we're finding shared values, we're connecting around ideas, we're creating flow of ideas between us and our experiences. I made you think of your colleague, you made me think of Devon Pena's essay, so we're kinning for them, even if they've never met, right? They both may hear this podcast, and then that process of each of us finding like our version of what I'm finding in the snowpack here, or what Michael Dahl found in his rice, as, as, as the cultural keystone to what about that ecosystem and that social ecological community makes you who you are in that place and therefore why is it worth fighting for every day and why is it enjoyable to to reconnect with it every day and not just struggle um, or involve joy in the struggle all of that is involved in kinning and so um, bringing to life words again will bring to life places and practices in place that I think Western conservationism has reduced to a kind of doom and gloom, guilt-driven, let's just do less bad here, rather than an exciting, delicious renewal of the human story, you know? Would you say that understanding that, you know, understanding what kinning is and that relationship is the antidote to human exceptionalism. Like I think a lot about how, you know, we, this is a settler colonial worldview, obviously, but one where we view our species as inherently superior. And I think, you know, it's very human centric and, in thinking about how we can shift away from that perspective, I wonder, is it through this shifting of language? Is it through this kinning practice that we can let go of this and develop more humility and a reverence for beings other than ourselves? Yeah, I do, actually. I do hope that, at least. I, I wouldn't be involved in it if I didn't hope that. And I think it's, again, Enrique's concentric concept, uh, Robin's kinning, I think that the, these concepts are the next step in the progression of environmental ethics, you know, shifting from anthropocentrism where what benefits dominant humans is what defines what has value in the world, shifting to biocentrism, looking at life, which drove the animal rights movement, to ecocentrism, looking at systems and the health of ecological communities as at the center of what has value and what should shape right and wrong in our decisions moving that to kin. And what it does is it brings things full circle. Anthropocentric, I think too much took human out, mm-hmm. right? And, and even though I uh, agree with preservationism as a tactic, as the whole story of environmentalism is very dangerous, I think to take humans out, right? And so anthropocentric, you know, the shift from anthropocentrism was a good shift in humbling human domination and saying what's good for us is not good in itself. Right? There are measurements of good that can be learned from other species. There are measurements of good that need to be learned from ecosystems. But it took humans too far out of the picture. It started to appear as misanthropic 
kin-centric brings humans back in and recenters humans um, as as humble, equal, but necessary participants um, in ecological health. And and um, wouldn't it be nice to be to develop a practice learned from the intersection of, of science and indigenous understanding? Wouldn't it be great to feel needed by the planet? rather than the narrative since the 60s of being a cancer on the planet? Wouldn't it be nice to feel needed by the planet? And we're here. We might as well figure out how to be needed. Yeah. And I also, you know, I I often think about, this is like very kind of maybe more philosophical, but I think about, you know, how we evolved to have language and like what the purpose of that is and in terms of like, the greater journey of just everything. And, you know, maybe there's, there's a reason we develop language and, and consciousness in the way that we develop. Cause I think other beings have consciousness that maybe is different. Um, and yeah, I mean, maybe that's so we can awaken to these, to these realizations and hopefully use them to, uh, for good. And, um, yeah. yeah. Well, I think that's the basis of, of kinship. The first step is that coming to consciousness of greater than human consciousness, mm-hmm. including in, um, non-living beings, um, seeing that personhood, seeing ways in which beings, communities, systems, uh, pursue their own good in their own way as equally important to the diverse human pursuits of the good, the human debate over the good. And then to, through that appreciation and respect of diverse forms of consciousness and diverse forms of personhood and diverse ways in which systems, beings, communities pursue their own good in their own way to see kinship with it all and, 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 and to see ourselves as kin right rather than as 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 dominant and um it's it's a thousand year project and one of the things i find challenging as someone who is involved in books like kinship and what kind of ancestor you want to be is these are thousand year projects in a world in which we better be below a 1.5 degree increase by 2050 and so i'm sort of wrestling with you know how to keep things urgent because of that 2050 um, existential climate challenge, but also how to continue to remind us that we're at our best when we think on the scale of a thousand years. You know, and I know a lot of people who I respect who don't think we're going to be around in 500 years. And so, how <laughs> to, right? And so, how to like give yourself permission to think on the thousand year scale um, as your act of urgency for 2050 regardless of whether or not we're here in a thousand years. David Watson, uh, a great Marxist environmentalist, um, he has a phrase, he said something like, um, the most ethical life is the life where you're gonna, you, you plant a tree even on the last day of earth. It's about the practice, right? And, and um, what feeds you and that larger self. Um, and I worry that, and here's someone who's about to 
teach another semester of climate action planning to grad students, okay? But I worry that the climate action movement has um, sort of reduced this thousand-year conversation to five-point plans for 2050. Enrique Salmon opens a public talk I once saw from him by saying, Martin Luther King didn't say, I have a five-point plan. He said, I have a dream, right? And environmental discourse needs that that level of thinking. And that's what we're trying to do in kinship. Mm-hmm. I just have a couple more questions. I, yeah. The final volume of the book is called Practice. And yeah. I... I love that because something that I try to do and all that I share is offer a practice to ground concepts and ideas into action. You know, I, I always sort of my business that has actually um, bloomed from this podcast. Originally, it started with a podcast, but it's now shifted into retreats and workshops because I felt like it was one thing to listen to this these episodes and feel very inspired. And that's, you know, I want that. And I want people to have these aha moments or just um, learn something. But I, I didn't want it to end there. I didn't want it to just become like another intellectual exercise. And I wanted people to take that inspiration and go out and do something, whether it was just going on a walk and, and connecting with their senses to have a felt experience in the natural world or, you know, there's a variety of things. So I would like to hear what are some practical everyday ways that we become kin? What are some things we can do? Yeah, I like that. Um, I like your phrase from early in the interview. Um, say it again, outer and inner, How to, uh, your particular wording Oh, yeah, just the idea of, like, what's around us is also within us. Yeah, and I think that's the beginning, and, and letting ourselves just see the, the practice of coming to understand what's within us and coming to really love and care for what's within us. Letting ourselves see that is not selfish. Letting ourselves see that is the beginning of kinship practice, because in us is the beginning of kinship, not just in the sense of, you know, connecting with all the parts of our being, but also like learning about the microbes in our gut <laughs> are part of the self, you know, learning that the, the, the body informs the brain. The body is thinking for the brain uh, more, more than we ever thought before, right? And therefore that breaks down that divide between the mind and the world and makes us part of, right? That's a kinship practice to go through that. Finding your own version of Gavin's kind of five senses, mindfulness, or his version of walking barefoot, finding our own versions of that to, to then go from that, that inner self-care slowly out into the world and to see that as part of that larger self. Um, you know, and so for me, even though, again, I teach climate action planning, um, all, all of my writing has been about merging um, sort of an overly privileged environmental ethics tradition with social justice critiques. Um, I still think that thought is action and self-care is care for the world. Um, if we can't care for our emotions, our hearts, our minds, our bodies, what hope do we have for, for, for caring for planetary natural systems? 
or thinking from an eco-feminist perspective, we can't build um, relational equity and care um, across all genders in a household or in a workplace or in a community. Where's our hope, right, for crossing the species boundary, right, or, or, or to, to care for the moon, right? And so I think, I think it actually has to start with the daily. Mm-hmm. Something that I do with a lot of the work that I do is, um, is connecting people to their intuition. And it sort of caught me by surprise. Like I didn't, I didn't necessarily envision that the work that I would do in the world would be connecting people to their intuition necessarily, because it came from that sense of responsibility to the planet. And, and it, and it came from that kind of like outer, um, like very physical, like connection to, you know, everything around us and the, and the responsibility we have to care for our earth and things like that. But what I've realized is that when people really connect to their intuition or their inner nature or their inner truth, however you want to call it, I do believe that that is when they, when they truly do that, if you if you come from that place, there's no way that you will then destroy what's around you because you will have that felt understanding and that experience of you, what is outside of you is within you and it's all one and all connected. So it's been, it's been sort of an interesting way in, but to your point, like it does start within. And if we can have that, that really deep connection to, I always say it's, I mean, I, I read in the book, it's, they talk about remembering and it's interesting because that's something I share. And I, I also share, it's like unlearning. It's like, we don't need to learn anything. We need to unlearn what we've been taught that has brought us so far away from like our, our true essence. Um, So I I love that you mentioned that. Yeah. You know, I just added a layer to, to your question about daily practice for listeners. You know, for me, it's really, that was that journey of um, understanding the importance of, healthy snowpack in the Rockies, not only for the health of the West, but for the health of John being John and John connecting with the grandfather. He didn't know that well, but who taught him to ski and John connecting with his kids and their kids through his love of the mountains. And that's me, by the way, John. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm I'm not going to go into total third person, but you know what I mean? Just like I think all of us have the capacity to figure out how the thing we enjoy the most about our place is also that which opens up our kinship with that place is also that which um, is most central to that place being healthy for all beings. And if we can find that, you know, Michael's love of taking his kid racing in a canoe uh, and therefore fighting against the, the acid rain and climate change and, 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 and economic exploitation that threatens their rice, right? But it's, it, it's, a, it's a joyful struggle because it involves his favorite thing to do. <laughs> it both energizes him to, to keep on, but also reminds him of the, the keystone role of the rice and himself. Um, for me, you know, finding that like, vitality of snow for the west and that vitality for me 
spiritually and in my family. Um, to, the, to the extent that folks can find their version of that snowpack and go out and enjoy it every day and think through what it needs or key, sorry, what key needs, <laughs> what, as mm -hmm. Robin would say, what that being or system needs, that act of both, that act of finding it is a fun process and practice, even if you never find it. That awakens the self that is the world, right? And that fuels the struggle by allowing joy to be involved. You know, and if we keep it abstract, you know, about, you know, my carbon footprint tied to global greenhouse gases type, um, it's just exhausting. It's just exhausting. And we're going to continue to have, you know, every couple of years, you know, a little bit of media coverage over UN meetings that pretty much go nowhere. It's when it's like when you read that it, people have a hard time caring about climate change and then an easy time caring about like dogs, you know, or like, yeah. or, and it's because the dogs for, for a lot of people, it's a lot easier to conceptualize them as like a being. But I think, again, what you're speaking to is like, we've, we've just limited ourselves by thinking that everything around us doesn't have like being and personhood and you know, animism in some capacity. And so um, I love that we're ending on joy because <laughs> it's true. Connecting yeah. with nature is so fun and joyful and it helps me connect with my inner child and curiosity and awe and wonder. I mean, I've never been so, I always say that I've never been so happy as when I'm exploring, exploring the natural world. I mean, it's, it's mysterious and magical and having that beginner's mindset is such a key part of that. There's so much we don't know and it's endless. Um, so I'd love to end on that. I wanted to ask, is there any passage you want to share? You don't need to share something, but if there's anything that just intuitively feels important to share, um, we can do that. Yeah, I think I will. I, I thank you for asking. I think I'll share um, if I can, if I have it handy. This is what happens when you have a stack of volumes in the middle of an interview. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, just to kind of like uh, I don't know, like walk the talk here. Um, I'd like to share the opening to my essay. You can ship it. I think gets at the the power of snow and how it merges, you know, joy with ethical concern with self-care with family care with ecological care um i'm looking for this this place to 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 spread my brother-in-law's ashes um i will never forget the winter solstice of 2008 the first of many at our tiny shack perched below the mixed limestone and forested soldier shoulder of 12,000 foot terrible mountain in colorado from the moment that my family and I committed to owning this shoulder of terrible, or better yet, committed in 24 to this ridge owning us as its stewards, it reminded us of a landscape painting, a Chinese landscape painting we once saw in Taiwan, complete with crags cutting through fur canopy. For the 2008 winter solstice, my brother-in-law Abe and I skied up to the tiny shelter that my family and friends had built out of reclaimed decking and standing dead trees the previous summer 
We pulled my daughter, Adelia, a toddler, and my baby nephew, Tyus, and sleds behind us as we skied to the shack. It was on this solstice trip that I first learned that kinship with land requires kinship with people on the land. On our second night, the solstice itself, Abe and I ventured out on skis for a quick sunset view, thinking it would take half an hour. The ski lasted three hours because the sky refused to darken. The sun sank slowly into Fossil Ridge to the west, transforming the white-peaked continental divide to the east into a canvas of orange and rose alpenglow. As the alpenglow receded into twilight, the sky shifted to a thousand shades of purple, coloring snowy ground and white aspen in violet hues. For a brief moment, Abe and I lived in a world of purple underfoot, overhead, and from all directions, as if cosmos and land and us were merged as one. But it was Abe's glowing reaction that stands out over a decade later. Abe has since passed, leaving this realm in the spring of 2019 after a courageous and at times serene bout with cancer in five parts of his body. But something deep within a question he posed remains. How could anyone call this terrible mountain? He asked that night. Something deep within uh, the forest knowledge and practice he developed as a forester and shared with me on this land adds layers to his question. How could anyone call this terrible mountain? Now I ski solo for the 2020 solstice sunset. I carry some, the thumb-sized vial of Abe's ashes in my pocket. Abe wanted everyone he loved, and there were many, to have a share of his ashes. He asked that we spread them across our favorite places worldwide to broadcast Abe's enthusiastic love for inspirational places. I knew this was the place he would want my vial of him to be spread. But I also know that this solstice night, this process of skiing into slowly rising dark would be the time and reality through which he would want me to spread them. My younger daughter, Soul, not around in 2008, but now a 10-year-old force of curiosity, asked me when I will be back as I ski away in 2019. After the sunset, I tell her, knowing I have quite the journey ahead of me. And so through that, I really, you know, I, I challenged myself for this interview with the Ute Mountain Ute woman. I challenged myself with research into the history of how that mountain was um, stolen and exploited. Um, but it's really through what I learned from Abe on how to build kinship with that forest and how to have my presence there lead to a healthier forest that I come to understand my kinship with that mountain. And so that the thesis of that essay is, you know, if we want kinship with the greater than human world, we need um, human kinship that is formed on and through the land to get us there. Hmm. That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. Thanks for asking. I have a final section that I do called the last five questions and it's a rapid fire round. So it's easy breezy. Are you ready for them? Yeah. Okay. What is your favorite place in nature? I I think it would be in Quebec, a mossy clearing near my uncle's A-frame. If it's still there. What is the animal, mineral, or plant that resonates with you the most? Dog. 
<laughs> what I love. What is one thing we can do right now to connect with the natural world and bring more harmony into our lives? Go outside, close our eyes, breathe, and name in our brains every sound we hear. Let thoughts come in. And when a thought comes in, welcome it, but then go back to the next sound you hear. Even if what you hear is trucks, it's still making you present. What is the greatest lesson nature has taught you? That I'm a lot smaller than I was taught to think I am. Complete this sentence, nature brings me. Nature brings me connection with people and places that showed me my best self. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, John. This was, was that all five? I got through it. You got all five. <laughs> Rapid fire. It was such a joy to talk to you. And I... Again, I admire your work so much. I am so happy that we had a chance to speak. And um, I can't wait to to dive into all of your books, to be totally honest. I'm like, Aww. yeah, I'm really excited about that. It's so kind of you, Alyssa. And um, people should check out humansandnature.org. The Center for Humans and Nature is behind wildness, city creatures, kinship, what kind of ancestors do you want to be? Um, they now have their own press. Really cool site with um, formerly marginalized voices speaking to nature connection from all over the world. Really incredible source. If you're hearing my voice, you've made it to the end of my conversation with Dr. John Hausdorfer. I hope this conversation open your heart and mind to what it means to develop a closer connection with the world of relations around you. I also hope that it expanded your perception of our role on this planet from one that has only caused harm to one that can be critical to helping ecosystems thrive. Have a wonderful rest of your week. See you on the internet or for my LA friends on the trail. So long. You just listened to an episode of the Our Nature podcast. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review it. Thank you so much for listening. Stay curious, and I'll see you next week.